Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here is your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin'. Good to have you with us, everybody. This is a rebroadcast of yesterday's Hot Topic segment. Anytime we have some special guests on, we like to just carve out all the other parts of the broadcast that we did yesterday and just present in this rebroadcast just the Hot Topic. Yesterday, we had as our guest, and you're about ready to listen to that interview, David Stevens, the president and CEO of the Mortgage Bankers Association of America. We're honored to have him be on the broadcast. He's a good friend to this broadcast, and he is a friend to this industry. He's a leader in our industry, and we're always grateful to hear his perspective. In fact, it's important. It's not just that it's a luxury we should hear from this. It is essential that we hear from the leaders within our industry. And today's broadcast is just we cover a lot of topics, four particularly, five actually, that we get into. Just touch on the fifth one. The first one is stopping excessive enforcement. Then we're going to talk about in this broadcast the need the needed changes to Dodd-Frank rules and then what is being done about the SAFE Act and the traditional transitional licensing, not traditional, transitional licensing, and also marketing agreements, these MSAs that are out there. Are they, is this coming into more favor or is it falling out of favor with the regulators? And then we've got some brief comments about how to work in a purchase market. So great comments. And so join me in welcoming David Stevens to the broadcast Thank you for being a part of this broadcast. Great to be with you, David, always. David, I want to start with the topic, stopping excessive enforcement. It does seem like the enforcement on our industry has gotten excessive, over the top. Your thoughts? Well, look, it's obviously a complicated subject, but I think the thing that um, really stands out for all of us is that um, it was the point uh, a couple of weeks ago when Quicken Loans actually filed a preemptive lawsuit against the Department of Justice they subsequently filed their own uh, lawsuit against Quicken Loans. But, you know, this is a, a, another step, and enforcement comes from all areas of Washington, D.C., and, and all the state uh, regulators and state's attorneys general, so it can come from any variety of locations. But this particular one is uh, where the Inspector General of HUD, in using the False Claims Act, will go after a lender for defects in loan files, claiming that they they falsely made a claim for the insurance payment on the FHA program. If you lose those cases, you're subject to treble damage claims yes. per incident, per loan file. I mean, the punishment clearly does not match the crime, especially when the vast majority of loan file defects are not material or are correctable. And uh, unfortunately, these cases uh, go beyond that. But the, the quick and suit, just, just to make the point, you couldn't ask for a better plaintiff, I don't, I don't think, to uh, argue a case like this. Their compare ratio is, you know, 45. They're, they've won the J.D. Powers Award for customer service, I think, five yeah. years in a row. They've moved their headquarters into downtown Detroit, reinvesting in one of the hardest-hit communities we've ever seen in this country from this uh, last recession. 
And, you know, when they're fighting back, I think it's it, it emboldens sort of the whole industry. I, I was going to give Bill Emerson a Superman cape when he came on the stage at uh, secondary, but I don't <laughs> think I'll go that far. He's another one of those guys. I admire him at many levels. And, you know, you look at someone who's a leader, they step up and sometimes take those unpopular issues, and they step out right. ahead of the industry. And because of who they, their their reputation, I mean, that they didn't buy that J.D. Powers Award. That is that is truly a very independent study, and they are best at origination and servicing consistently. So kudos yeah. to Bill. But let's talk a little bit about the momentum. Are you seeing, David, from your perspective, things shifting where the administration even saw that maybe we've gone too far with this? And at one point in time, there seemed like they say, we've got to be careful that we don't damage the industry that's going to really be the engine of, for economic growth. And there seemed to be, at one point, some easing off. And then we just see another wave of lawsuits after that. Where do you see the momentum? Is it shifting at all away from excessive well, I, or are we... I think we have a ways to go, David. So look, we've been we've been in this thing now since you know really 2009 when the Dodd Frank legislation was in peak battle up on Capitol Hill, and then we we spent the next few years yeah. implementing these rules and trying to figure out how to do it right and adding compliance staff, et cetera, et cetera. It just seems like no matter how hard you try, you still can't get it right, and you're still subject to some form of risk. I'd highlight the American Banker article today, which talks about uh, CFPB's use of fair lending violations and quoting back, you know, old history about redlining cases uh, that they think are existing and creating discrimination today. The, the problem the problem is this, you know, I, I always hear people like, why can't the president fix this? It's his fault or so-and-so needs to stop this. It's the HUD secretary. The, the, these are things that are at this point not in the White House control when they come from the Department of Justice, who's an independent regulator right. and an inspector general. They're not Secretary Castro's issue because the IG is an independent overseer of risk at HUD. But it is without question the collective weight. HUD does play a role and the, and the secretary plays a role. Just take this one False Claims Act approach that's being used. We never dealt with False Claims Act cases pre-2011. In fact, I was FHA commissioner when we first identified right. that this was an out, this was a law that could be used, and many of us inside did not want it used because we thought it would open a Pandora's box and be used in an inappropriate way. But it's been used by uh, the Inspector General, and one one thing that HUD I think could help with is they could better clarify what defects are, are you really going to be held accountable, and which ones are you are you not going to be held accountable? Which ones are egregious and material that are clearly you know what we call fat thumb mistakes where the same employee does it over and right. over and over again. Those are things that a lender can be held accountable for. But minor mistakes in a file that wouldn't have made a difference whether the loan would have been done in the first place or minor mistakes that can be corrected, those don't deserve the same kind of response. And yet it appears that the way the IG and the DOJ are behaving, it's one size fits all. Any mistake is equal to the next. And it, the outcome of this is going to be clear. You know, wealthy, well-heeled, home buyers with large down payments, great credit scores, you know, with all the money in the world, they're going to get all the mortgages they want one way or the other. But these yep. actions are going to ultimately stop lending to the people that, quite frankly, most of these policymakers yep. care about. And it's very difficult to accuse someone of disparate impact when they're trying to follow the rules, especially when they know if they go too far, they're going to be hit with a False Claims Act for every mistake and every file that goes to default. It just doesn't add up. The rules do not make sense when what, when complying with one rule creates conflict in another and ultimately could put your company out of business. It's so true. 
one of the, just looking at some questions that are coming in from listeners that are texting me already. David, one of the questions that came in is, you know, they look at the Quicken deal. How much is this politically motivated? I, I don't. That's one of those things. I hate to even go there, but it's one question that's come in several times. Is there any any credence to aspects of this being politically motivated? No, I don't think there's political motivation. I, I would tell you that. There's two large cases going on, on the, using the False Claims Act. And by the way, for your listeners, enforcement actions come from all sorts of different agencies for different reasons, and so we, you almost need to parse them. An enforcement action from the CFPB is very different than an IG using false claims with the Department of Justice. It's just entirely different sources for where those claims come. But anyway, for the, there's two big cases related to the False Claims Act, both against very large institutions. Quicken is one of them. Quicken, yep. quite frankly, politically, is is the fair-haired child in Washington. They're viewed as, you know, they're getting accolades for what they've done to reinvest in Detroit and, and some of the brown state markets. So if, if there was a political motivation here to, to go after Quicken, that would not make sense. These are, uh, I, I think, where the focus is from, coming from inspectors generals is that the larger targets create the biggest opportunity for a big settlement, a big statement to be made in, in, in the markets and in term, and showing their ability to enforce protections for the taxpayers as they might look at it. So I don't call that political. I just think that, you know, attorneys like big cases. They set precedents and uh, they're using this particular process to try to get really yeah. big settlements out of institutions. The one thing I would just say is in most cases, banks settle. There's been a bunch of settlements using this approach. Yeah. There's only two that are actively being fought in the courts and defended by the institutions. And I think until we see one of these cases go through the courts and hopefully see an institution prevail or broadly prevail to a much smaller kind of settlement action, you know, we got to keep sort of ducking and, and hoping that none of us get picked out yeah. as a lender mm-hmm. in the marketplace because as we all know, and everybody on this call knows who does mortgages, and you're looking at your monthly error rates that are coming out of your QC process, you know, every loan, for the most part, has some form of mistake in it. And so it's pretty difficult to try to encourage you to expand credit when you know that by doing so, that loan has a slightly higher likelihood of going into default, and that default creates a higher likelihood yeah. of some action coming against you. I really applaud Bill Emerson for stepping up and taking the leadership role that he has on this one because, I think you said, I think there's no better poster child of doing it right or trying to do it right. Not that any of us can do it right because of the vagueness in that. Andy's got a quick question for you. Andy Shell. Well, hey, Dave, I actually have a two-part question, if you don't mind. The first point you were talking about is stopping excessive enforcement, and you gave a great example with the HUD IG and the impacts and the irrelevant to mortgage loss. But what what about the CFPB? What about the CFPB? Yep. Do you do you see issues with excessive enforcement coming from the CFPB? And then, then I have a follow up. Yes. Yeah, so um, the CFPB cases have been less um, public, but you know we all are aware of the fact that when they go do an on-site audit, uh, there is a question as to whether they pivot too quickly from doing the on-site review to what's called a CID, where they actually find some errors in their process that uh, could violate the CFPB rules and then immediately refer to the enforcement division. Most prudential regulators of financial institutions, everybody here who's a lender knows, deals with some regulator, either at the state or federal level, most prudential regulators, they'll work through common day-to-day issues with the lender. Uh, lenders may implement operational cha- changes in order to satisfy the regulator, and there's a lot of back and forth. It doesn't automatically go to enforcement unless it's truly egregious. 
What is a bit concerning out of the Bureau is the use of uh, unfair deceptive practices, what's called UDAP, and so applying rules that came into place post Dodd-Frank against book loans that were made previous to the rule. So they use UDAP as an effort yeah. to broaden the, the pool uh, in that process. We're, we've, we're raising that question with the Bureau itself. But again, as I would tell Rich Cordray, and I do tell him this, uh, and I speak to him frequently, um, is that you know this is a time to create confidence in the markets, not to continue trying to find institutions and mm-hmm. find reasons to pursue actions again in institutions that aren't engaging in malicious acts with intent. So uh, let, we need yep. to separate uh, footfalls and, and lenders trying to operationalize a very complex set of rules that have come into place with those that are, that are purposefully trying to commit fraud. And until we do that, uh, we're going to keep this level of fear. I call it defensive lending. Uh, that's how we're lending in America today. Yep. It's a defensive lending environment. Until we can remove that defensive lending environment, you know, it's our perspective, credit will remain tight. And I think ultimately that's the argument we need to make with everybody. That it's the, it's the, the response to all of this is that fewer consumers get access to home ownership. And the consumers that aren't getting access are the ones that they're actually making these rules to try to protect in most cases. So um, right. it, this isn't a matter of saying stop Dodd-Frank or the CFPB is is wrong. I mean, the Bureau actually is doing a lot of good things, too. It's it's identifying those things that are, we think, excessive and are need to be stopped. It's why I was so vocal on uh, something so simple as that rate checker tool. I just couldn't let it sit that they would put out a tool that, uh, in an effort to somehow help consumers, that actually underdisclosed rates and terms far more so than, than lenders are obligated to require. Um, I thought, I thought, and still think it's a terrible example of what the bureau shouldn't do. And we, you know, they should try to themselves to recognize when they make their own mistakes and try to use their seat in an effort to protect consumers to create consistency, common standards applied to all lenders, and not force knee-jerk responses by lending institutions across the country simply out of fear. Several, one person just wrote me real quickly. Yeah, great. said, uh, what is CID? They said they filed a CID. They're not familiar with that. Well, if, if you go through a, a CFPB audit and you're issued a CID, right. it's a it's a demand that you meet with their enforcement bureau. Uh, I think it's within 10 days following the identification of the mistakes wow. they found. Uh, I, I don't want to go into that process, but we do right. question the sort of judicial process that uh, these institutions have to go through and, and the risk to the individual that ultimately has to go uh, sort of defend the mistakes that, that were identified by the Bureau um, without without the ability to have an attorney present and a lot of other issues. So the, the, the point here is this immediate transition to enforcement, not in all cases, but that we have seen in many cases, we think it could take a different path where as a prudential regulator, they could be working to provide leadership and advise the lending community that's trying to do this right. Mm-hmm. Again, separating out the egregious violators, which is a very, very small minority of American lending today, but really help the lending community uh, get the rules right the way we want to. Because um, anybody in this call knows if you're listening to this call, it's because you are trying to get it right. And, and that, that's just ultimately the, the pathway we need to be working towards. Andy, you well, had another a question. Follow up, if I could, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, yeah, go ahead. And, and that is, uh, as we've sort of thrown up this uh, this uh, backstop of uh, irrelevant to mortgage loss. 
So the IG pursuing things based on False Claims Act, irrespective of if it would really cause a loss to the fund or to the originator or whatever. Uh, and, and yet we also have on the other side the CFPB coming up with a whole bunch of rules, a whole bunch of stuff, servicing and compliance management, and third-party management, and new you know, the TRID and all this stuff. And so um, having spent most of my career in regulated depository mortgage lending, I'm used to having lots of rules. And we, we talk to people who go – when we say, have you implemented third-party management? Well, no, because we, we don't think the CFPB really cares because it's not relevant to origination. So it doesn't matter if our vendors have the appropriate service level agreement because nobody cares. How do we balance as originators the, the focus of big picture? It's, not re- it's irrelevant to mortgage loss directly, although one could argue that it could be. But how do you, how do you get everybody on board with – CFPB rules are here to stay. We're going to have to follow them. We might not like them all. Some of them might not directly have impact on direct mortgage loss, like third-party management, compliance management systems as a whole. How do you help people get on board with we got to do it all? <laughs> well, um, <laughs> let's see. I, you know, I, I think that there's – this is a I, – I can't give you the answer that would do service to the few the minutes left on the call other than to say that to a large degree, I think commonality and response is going to be the benefit – to come to the benefit of everybody. So, you know, whether you get it out of one of our conferences or wherever you get sort of a mutual understanding, um, I'm going to be speaking at the Richie May Conference out in Colorado just to talk to their clients – I think the one-off institution that isn't prepared is the one that's most exposed. Um, I also think there's a, a sort of, to some degree, a, a little bit of cover for a, a, an institution that's just a very small because uh, ultimately the Bureau uh, and generally any enforcement division can only work so fast through so many institutions. But whether it's third-party or TRID compliant, you know, just take loan officer compensation programs or marketing service agreements and whether they're RESPA compliant. I mean, we, we have a list, I think it's 22 pages of questions um, that we've, we've completed in very small font and submitted to the Bureau asking them for written declarative FAQs, uh, specific wow. answers to questions, it, just related to TRID on its own. And, and what, one of our concerns about the FAQs is that regulators don't like to write written responses. They like to give verbal feedback. In this case, yeah. we're really pushing hard for written responses. It, it, this is an iterative process, but I think in the end of the day, the best way to manage if you're an institution out there is you need to be part of a group, a, a networking group. If you're a member of the MBA, you should reach out to me right away. We have groups that have weekly calls and just do nothing but go through this, and it's an open invitation to anybody who wants to join. But it, it is a challenge. And, you know, will everybody be ready on August uh, 1st when TRID is implemented? My assumption is no, but I do believe that if every institution has done what they've been at their very best been trying to implement and be ready for TRID with all due diligence and is generally following the suggested practices of their vendors who, if they're well-known vendors, I think generally speaking, they're going to be not at risk for short-term enforcement kind of actions. And I think the Bureau will most likely make that clear in some fashion. But this is confusing time, and we are we are war torn. We've we've uh, reached operational implementation maximization. We just can't take any more right now, and we need to. You know, one thing <laughs> we're emphasizing the bureau is when trid rolls out, can, let's take a breather here, guys. Let's give us a chance now. For the last two years, we've been nonstop change management. We need to now get a chance to get the entire set of of players right. that are involved in our industry to catch up. 
We are ha- we have on this rebroadcast of yesterday's Hot Topics segment, David Stevens is our guest, and we're on the topic of getting the rules right. Let's go ahead and continue this discussion. David, let's switch topics and focus on Dodd-Frank. What are the needed changes to Dodd-Frank? Uh, let me just high level. First of all, you know, what, what I bristle at is hearing folks that I worked with when I was in the administration. Elizabeth Warren, for example, was an advisor to Tim Geithner, and I was, I was on the housing team working with the secretary and a group of others and met with her frequently. We all knew that Dodd-Frank wasn't perfect. The, the idea that yeah. certain members of, of Congress would say that any changes to Dodd-Frank or the rules is a terrible thing and you're trying to take, destroy Dodd-Frank or, is ridiculous. These laws are made ugly because they go through a congressional process. They're never perfect, and you need to make changes after you see it in effect. So example yes. number one, the qualified mortgage rule. It doesn't work. If we were actually underwriting to the rule, 43 DTI and an appendix Q, credit would be significantly tighter. What's protecting us is what we call the patch, this temporary, and it is this relatively temporary because it's only as long as the GSEs are in conservatorship or seven years, yep. uh, this patch that says if it's Freddie Fannie acceptable, then you're okay. If, if everybody had to really underwrite to the rule, it, we'd be in a far worse position. So the rule needs to be modified. Uh, we need to find a way to allow judgment to be used, particularly for self-employed borrowers, borrowers with variable income, uh, people buying a home who may have multiple income sources coming into that home. I can name a variety of examples. That's one. Two, the points and fees rule. You know, what makes me sort of crazy about the points and fees rule is we're in a system where the president has said, and Rich Cordray has said, the goal is to make this simpler so that the consumer can understand when they're getting a mortgage they can compare. I think it's pretty difficult to actually compare when one loan officer has to quote his income differently than another because he's in a non-bank environment or the title company, the title, serv- title has to be disclosed differently because it's affiliated or not affiliated. I mean, that's what perplexes me about the whole SAFE Act, and it, it, which was a predecessor to all of this, is we created different rules that give, uh, in essence, disparate treatment uh, depending on right. what kind of business model you have in this marketplace. If we're trying to create consistency and commonality for consumers, we need to eliminate all of these different rules that get applied differently for different institutions. And um, so, you know, points and fees is one. The qualified mortgage rule is a big one that I think needs to actually be written in a far more nuanced way to give far greater credence to the logic of real underwriting, the way we learned it once upon a time. Yes. But there are, there, there are a variety of other changes we need to make to the National Servicing Standards Rule, to the LO Comp Rule, et cetera, that are ultimately going to have to be implemented. I want to get over to the SAFE Act fixes that are necessary, specifically sure. transitional <laughs> licensing. Yeah. Well, look, I, you know, there's a lot of folks out there who would like, who believe that I take a test, everybody should have to take a test. Now, I'll tell you, personally speaking, I completely agree with that. This is an issue that's been worked on long before I came into Washington. I was running the single-family business at Freddie Mac for almost a decade. We had a project working on this back in the 90s to have a common testing standard. I mean, quite frankly, you can become a loan officer for a bank uh, almost easier than you can become a hairdresser in Washington, D.C., because if you're a hairdresser, you've got to pass a test and go to school. (laughs) So it it is, and I don't mean that in the wrong way, but I do worry about adverse selection. I also worry about consumer confidence. I I would love it if we could go out on the podium and say, okay, America, doesn't matter who you take a loan from today, no matter who they work for or where they are, they've all met the same standardized testing, uh, education and testing requirements. 
We can't say that today. We can say it for part of the industry, but not all of it. This isn't, to me, it's not about like picking winners or losers or fairness. Uh, it is to many of you. To me, it's about making sure we have a system that's consistent for everybody. And that creates the greatest right. competitive opportunity and gives the consumer the same experience. Safe Act. So we're not going to get testing requirements through Congress. Just not going to happen. I'd, I could explain that later. But what we can get done uh, is this idea of transitional licensing. It's step one. The transitional licensing law in yes. the past would say that you know if you're changing companies and you're going, say, from a bank to a non-bank, that you have 90 days to pass the test. As long as you were a practicing employee in the field um, and you know no legal exposure as a result of your work, et cetera, you're just merely changing jobs, you should be able to keep doing your work while you take your new job. Uh, and if, if your new job yeah. now requires you to take a test, allow for a transitional period uh, for you to t- uh, you know go through t- education and testing requirements and ultimately become approved. And if you don't pass, then ultimately you can't uh, stay in that job. But you know, the thing we have right now yeah, is we makes... have impediments to an, a, a, a person's ability to move between jobs within their career simply because of this barrier yeah. to entry, which doesn't make sense. What's the MBA recommending as far as the transitional licensing period? Is it 90 days? Uh, there, there's a piece of legislation now that has co-sponsorship uh, in the House that would have a 90-day transition. We okay. we had a, we had a variety of original recommendations, but you know, keep in mind, gang, that. We go up and we, we, we'll actually go up sometimes with draft legislative text and we'll suggest to various members. And I will tell you, I personally met with Republicans and Democrats in the House and the Senate on this issue. Uh, we finally found you know, some interested members on the House side that actually wanted to sponsor a bill and that, a bipartisan sponsorship. So it's a great step. Now, they ultimately draft their own language. It's their staff that drafts the legislative text. They've oh, yeah. got to negotiate amongst each other. That'll, that that as it stands now, has a 90-day provision in it. Uh, and that's something okay. that you know is certainly reasonable and that most people can comply with in most states right now. I'm looking at the minutes. <laughs> I want to cover these issues because so many people tuned in, tuned in to listen to us get at least through the, the main four. And the marketing agreements, MSAs, Marketing agreements that are out there. What's uh, what do you see happening in there? Look, I think the I think the scrutiny on marketing service agreements will only increase over time. And and I think at at yeah. the core, I think the real legal question that ultimately has to be answered, probably by the bureau, is 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 a marketing service agreement unto itself an item an, an item of value? Is, is the fact you actually have an agreement does that become an item of value? I know that there are some out there that can be well run. I'm, look, I'm a practitioner, as you know, David. I come from the business. I, I worked for a large company that had a had joint yes. ventures, uh, and I actually testified in a class action suit as a witness and uh, related to the, to kickback uh, a kickback accusation. This is a highly yep. volatile issue. I would just caution anybody who's engaging in MSAs. Uh, to make sure they have a really well-known national RESPA lawyer and not just take some attorney who wants to be hired by them who will give them the answer they want uh, because that ultimately won't necessarily prevail when you, if you have to go to court. I, I just think it's, a, it's an issue that's not going to go away, and the, the focus on this is only going to increase, I think, over time. Especially as we see interest rates rising, there's all everyone's trying to figure out a way. How can we lock up more business? There's more momentum seems within independent mortgage bankers to go towards a marketing arrangement. They see other companies doing it, but I don't know that they've seen the effort that has gone in by those companies to get it right and get more importantly the legal counsel 
before they launch it. And I think you un- I want to underscore that point you make. David, you yeah. were originator. Your roots are in origination. What do you think is going on? I mean, we're seeing a shift to uh, the purchase market. Uh, words of wisdom for those that are struggling with that shift as we wrap up the broadcast. <laughs> hey, we're, we're 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 going back in time. This is old school, man. I mean, you know, I started in yeah. there very early. I started in the very early 1980s when interest rates were in the high teens, and there was no refinance market whatsoever. We made our money the old-fashioned way. We went out, uh, called on realtors every day. Uh, and worked to get the purchase business. That's the market we're heading into here. And uh, this this rate shifting is going to be a long-term scenario, not a short-term one from our perspective. And so, you know, those that have access to the point of sale, real legitimate access to the point of sale and have focused on there are going to be, at least in the short run, they're going to be the beneficiaries of having built up that uh, reputation. Those that aren't, you know, it's still it's a wonderful industry, and the demographics are going to call for extraordinary demand for housing over the next decade. Um, I think from that end, it, it, there is opportunity. It just means that for many, they've got to shift their business mentality if they were refi focused into purchase. It is so important, David. Thank you so much. I applaud what you are doing there at the NBA with so many initiatives. One of my favorite ones is the recruiting and equipping of the next generation. Mortgage banking bound. We had. Uh, Jeff Schumer, along with Brendan Barry. Barry, it was just just they did an outstanding job. I can't, uh, folks, go back and listen to that uh, April twenty seventh broadcast again. Great group around there. I, I'm I'm impressed with the team that you've brought to the NBA and the leadership you're providing to them, and quite frankly, to our industry. Thank you, David, so much for being here with us today, and I look forward to having you back here soon. Thanks, David. It's good to have David Stevens as a guest. He is a regular guest on our broadcast. We appreciate you tuning in. Share this broadcast with others. There's so much good information in here. It's important that you are up to speed on all that's going on. Appreciate you tuning in and sharing this and making it a part of your web method of getting information. Appreciate you being here. Have yourself a great rest of the day and look forward to seeing you back here next Monday when we have another Liquid Unlending broadcast. Have a great day, everybody. This has been Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin, of Mortgage Banking Solutions, enabling executives to take their business to the next level. Today's guests were Joe Farr from MBS Line, Andy Shell of Mortgage Banking Solutions, and Alice Alvey, President CMB of Mortgage U. Come by next week, and thank you for listening. 